Hey, well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Hey, um, if you have a Bible, you can begin to make your way to the book of 1 Peter in our, our new series. Uh, is it, do we not have a slide for that? <laughs> Faithfulness in a foreign land. Uh, this is uh, towards the end of, of your Bible, towards the, the back end by, by Revelation. You're, you're getting close if you're all the way there. Uh, but uh, we're going to start a new series. And as I was working on this series this week, I was just profoundly grateful for you, uh, profoundly grateful for this church, profoundly grateful that you allow me the opportunity to take days and, and hours to just dig into this and to, to kind of just soak in this. And that's my job. And, and you guys give that to me. So thank you for that. So, so Wednesday, I'm writing this sermon and uh, just kind of deep in this passage that we're getting in and just, just treasuring what, what you're about to see and, and hopefully uh, treasure it as well with me. When, when my phone begins to, to blow up with text and they're saying, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what's going on? And I'm like, no, I'm trying to write a sermon and the text still coming. And they're like, no, they stormed the Capitol. And I'm like, okay, let's check this out. And, and, and of course, just the craziness of, uh, of the, this week, right? Like it's 2021, just like saying, hey, 2020, you got nothing. So, uh, I'm in that, but, but as, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm looking at the news, I'm also just steeped in what we're about to, to, to look at in an eternal word that, that has uh, stood the test of time. And I, and I was just, I, was, I just had a profound uh, a sense of, of peace, a profound sense of, man, God is on his throne. Uh, whatever craziness is going on outside the, these walls and in our country and in the world, uh, this is a word that is meant to, to just center us, to encourage us to give us rest and so uh, I, I don't always do this well but because I think of this word when, when that happened I, I just didn't get spun up like I normally do I, I was like well I'm not that concerned about it quite frankly because of what's in this word today now first Peter you need to know first Peter has had a special place throughout church history uh, Martin Luther called it a paragon of excellence on par with the book of Romans, which, which is saying a lot. He, he said, First Peter contains all that the Christian needs to know. So if you're new or you just want to get the Cliff Notes version of Christianity, First Peter is where it's at, right? Uh, but, but First Peter has a special place, particularly among people throughout history and even today, that, that find themselves, believers that find themselves um, kind of marginalized, find themselves maybe persecuted, suffering on the outskirts, not in the positions of power, not in the positions of uh, authority and rule and cultural influence. First Peter has this, been this treasure. So uh, former Eastern Bloc countries like Yugoslavia, First Peter was the book that they would memorize. And, and even today, in, in places where the church is under persecution, this is a word to a people on the margins to encourage, to equip them, to set them on a life full of hope and meaning. So uh, again, if you have your Bible, First Peter is where we're going to be at today. Um, and I'll go ahead and read our first 12 verses, pray for our time, and begin to unpack this uh, together. So as I do so, listen carefully. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have, grie- you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. It's timeless and timely. I pray that uh, for each person here, uh, as they uh, have lived out their story this week and will live it out this next week, may they find their place in your story Uh, through this word today. Give us a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Peter, obviously written by Peter. We, we know something about Peter from, from the Gospels. And when we look at Peter in the Gospels, he's, he's kind of relatable, right? Uh, at least to me, right? He, he, think, he speaks first and then thinks second. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's kind of stumbling and bumbling, but he's, he's leading uh, as best he can. And, and he's, a, he's faltering in his faith, but <clears throat> yet Jesus still lifts him up. He even abandons Jesus in his most critical hour of need and After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he comes to Peter and he restores him. He sends him. And Peter has seen a lot. He saw for three years the miracles of Jesus. He saw Jesus' dead body. He he saw Jesus' body risen again. And he saw Jesus ascended to heaven uh, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And and he saw the church born 50 days later at Pentecost when the Spirit came on the believers. And he stood up and he preached the gospel. And thousands of people gave their lives to Christ that day. That was through Peter. Peter's seen all this. Think about what Peter saw. Now, this is written about 60, 62 AD. So this is three decades after those events. But, but he saw uh, the church explode and grow, and there was joy, but then he saw persecution begin to come. He saw a young man named uh, Saul of Tarsus begin to just uh, ravage the church, put to death his friends and his family. He grieved, he mourned, he shed tears over the wickedness of Saul, and then he saw the unthinkable that the mercy and grace of God could rescue even one like Saul and turn this persecutor of the church into the greatest evangelist the church has ever seen. But Peter, Peter's, uh, he's blue collar. He, he, he tells it like it is. He's, he, he's not like the Apostle Paul who is just kind of high level theology, great. Peter even says, hey, Paul, write some things that are hard to understand, but let me break it down for you. 
Uh, but, but think about this. Now, he, for three decades, he's been seeing God do the church. And now, he's not the same Peter that he was in Matthew. Imagine you three decades ago. Some of you weren't here, but those of you that were, hopefully you've grown. Hopefully you've matured. And he's seen the church grow and spread. And he, he finds himself now in, in, in Rome, in about the year 60, 62 A.D., and he's, he's thinking about uh, this church, and, and, and he's thinking about how, um, well, like all pastors, I, I've been a pastor just two decades, he's seen people come into the church and, and be on fire, and then he's seen them make shipwreck of their faith, just walk away. He's seen other knuckleheads that he th- thought, man, there's no way that, that guy has a future or hope, but, but somehow the Spirit of God grabs a hold of that person, and, and they just grow and like all pastors, he just has this burden. Like, why is it that some grow and, and some walk away? And it breaks his heart. So, so at the end of his letter, he, he actually tells us the whole purpose of the letter. Uh, it's good for us to know as we head out. Matthew, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that the, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He wants you and I and all that would read his letter and the people that first read his letter to have perseverance, to stand firm to, in the faith that we have. But what about the audience? <clears throat> Again, the year is about 60, 62 AD. In the year 64 AD, Rome would burn and Nero would blame it on the Christians and a great persecution would break out. So this hasn't happened yet, but almost prophetically, he's preparing God's people to bear up under persecution. But there has been pockets of persecution, and, and part of that, it just means that the, the, the Roman culture was not into Christianity. They didn't like it. Christians were different. And so uh, what Rome would do often to spread their culture and spread their empire, they would disperse people. And so they would take uh, Christians and, and, and uproot them out of their, their family and their community and their jobs and, and say, you're going to go live in this city now. Good luck. And so you have all these Christians that have been dispersed, not of their own will, but um, by a, a wicked government, and, and they're kind of just wondering. They're starting to feel the, the, the cost of following Jesus. Yeah, have you ever felt, actually felt the cost of following Jesus? They've lost their job. They've lost their social status. They've lost their city. And they've been transported to a, a, another place that they don't know anybody. They, they, they just know that they're here because they're following Christ. And they're beginning to maybe wonder, is it worth it? It's starting to be costly. And I, we know that Jesus said it would be costly. But for them, it's, it's, being costly. it's become more and more costly. And they're wondering, does God see? Does God care that, that we've been pushed to the margins of society? Is, if God does see and, does God, and God does care, is he powerful enough to do anything about it in this moment? So they're just wondering. And these are the people that uh, Peter writes his letter to. But even for us, the last 1,500 years of Western civilization has predominantly been shaped by the Judeo-Christian worldview. But about 200 years ago, a shift began to happen and, and things that were just assumed in terms of uh, moral capital and ethics and other things uh, began to be cast off. But about a decade or two decades ago, uh, it started to take an exponential uh, turn away from those things. I mean, just in the last few years, we've seen just a massive shift away from cultural Christianity to uh, kind of a, a neo-paganism. 
with its own morals and its own uh, cherishing of things. And, and Christians who have uh, culturally, at least, uh, in the last few hundred years, enjoyed a position of prominence and power have been now relegated to positions on the margins. And um, we don't like that. <laughs> There is a tendency to be like, well, what can we do? What, what, what do we need to do? What, what, what can we compromise so that we get back to a position of stature and power and authority in the broader culture? And, and Peter's going to say, it's not about that. It's okay that you're on the margins. God does his best work in his church and through his church in the world on the margins. So this is good news for us. This is good news. And so he, he's writing to them, but he's writing to us because we're like, man, what do we do? Because we all want to fit in. Hey, like th- th- there's nothing wrong to be like, man, I just want to be accepted by my neighbors. But then when, the, when, when things so radically shift and you're like, I, I can't be there uh, with you on this. I can't affirm you in this thing. Uh, uh, then, then we're called hateful. We're called bigoted. We're, we're called phobic in, in whatever means that is. And, and so uh, there's, a, there's a pressure on the church to just kind of be like, well, what do we need to do so you still like us? And Peter says, no, it's not about that. <laughs> there's so much more for us in this. So let's, let's look at this together here. He starts his letter, Peter, an apostle. Again, we talked about that. <clears throat> and immediately he wants to set their identity right straight. He wants to position them in the world, but not of the world. He wants to position them before God. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. That, that term, those, those two words are, are intentionally paradoxical. Normally, they, they would not go together. One speaks of acceptance. One speaks of rejection. He says, you are elect exiles. Exiles. Uh, this, uh, this word's important. Peter's going to use it a few times in his letter, and it's used in like the book of Hebrews and otherwise, but, but, but it's, it's important. To, uh, he's saying you need to understand who you are in this world. To be a Christian is to be in exile. So he's taking uh, a people that are, are suffering, who are physically exiles, and he says, you know what? I, I'm not going to deny that. I'm going to affirm that. What you are physically, you're actually spiritually as well. And they're like, well, thank you for that. It's like, no, you're, you're exiles. What's an exile? Well, it's not a tourist. See, a, a tourist, when you go, you get your passport, you go, you go to uh, not really invest in the community. Not, you know, you're not moving there. You're just there to consume. You're to take the best food and culture and see the sights. And you're not going to make any relationships there. You're a tourist. But that's not what this word is. It's also not immigrant. An immigrant is someone who comes from another country and, and seeks to uh, fully embed themselves in that country, to, to learn the language the, the, in the best sense, to learn the culture, to kind of uh, settle in. And so the vast majority of us in this room, at some point in our heritage and our ancestors, they immigrated here and now we have, we have melted. We, we are our own culture now. We're Americans, but, we're, but this word is not immigrants. We're not, this is not our home. The, the best way to interpret or, or translate this word exiles is, is actually something that my family has experienced a couple times. Both in uh, Japan and in the Czech Republic, we were given ID cards and on the ID cards it said resident aliens. 
which is a little bit disturbing to see on a card with your name on it. I don't normally think of myself as a resident alien, but this is what Peter is getting at. You're a resident alien. You're not from here. This is not your citizenship, but you're also not a tourist. You're here uh, semi-permanently, but not permanently, and you're not really necessarily one of us. This is what, what Peter's getting at. So, so resident aliens seek to, in, in the best sense, seek to uh, be for the city and the flourishing of the people that are around them. They're, they're not withdrawn. They're not tourists. They're not consuming. And, and yet they're not all in. They're not totally just trying to melt into that society. So for example, uh, when we had just first moved to the Czech Republic, uh, we got a, a newsletter from our little village. Our village was called Bosanohi. And in, the vill- in it, we, we had only had a couple months of language learning. And so with the help of our translator, we, we kind of went through this thing and we saw that they were doing a, um, I can't say it now, Zoe can help me out. <laughs> I, I'm missing the words now. I'm losing my language. They were doing a spring cleaning. Okay, see, I got it. And they were doing a spring cleaning. And I'm like, okay, so the village is going to get together. They're going to walk through all the streets of the village, going to walk through the, the paths in the forest. We can do that. So we show up and everyone's kind of staring at us, know that, that we're different. Because by the way, as a resident alien, you're always different. You're always a little bit weird. That's Okay. And so we, get, we see they pass out the trash bags and we, we kind of attach ourselves to some people and we walk. And for a few hours, we're just picking up trash and we're going with the flow. And, and then we go up into the, the, the forest and there's a, like a kind of a party where they have sausages on a stick like we would do with marshmallows and, and warm beer. And the kids are drinking it and everyone's drinking it. And we're like, okay, we could do this. And so uh, we did that. And, and the next month, uh, the newsletter came out and they, they reported on it was an international uh, spring cleaning day. And that's because they talked about us in that. And so uh, for that, we were for the flourishing of our village. There were other ways and other things and other times where we could not enter in. There were morals and practices and, and religious activities that were like, no, this would not be right as resident aliens for us to engage in. So you, you understand how that works. You are you are one foot in the world, but one foot in your true citizenship. But, but that was the second word. The first word that he used was elect. Uh, you, you could understand the Greek word electos. <laughs> elect exiles. For whatever reason, uh, sometimes when we read this word, 22 times in the New Testament, by the way, uh, in, in modern mind, we, we come to that and we're like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I like that. But, but notice, just notice what Peter does. In the very first verse of his uh, letter to churches that are hurting and suffering and, and wondering if God cares, the very first thing he wants to say about them is, you've been chosen by God. This is good news. He's almost excited to talk about that. In fact, the rest of the 22 times in the New Testament, when, when we see this word, there is an excitement. There's a joy to it. There's a comfort in this. It isn't something we should uh, push away. It's something we should kind of echo and reflect what Peter has. We are elect exiles. And he says, just in case that, that isn't clear, you, you've been chosen, you've been rejected by the world, but you've been chosen by God. Uh, we've been rejected by the world because we've been chosen by God. Our, our citizenship has been transferred. Colossians 1 says, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves because we are elect. 
God chose us. He goes on, according to the foreknowledge, and that's such an important word, foreknowledge of God the Father. Now again, sometimes in our, in our, uh, our modern English translations, which are very good, by the way, sometimes we can come to a word and we'd be like, I know what that means. And we can pour our own meaning into it. And, and so, for example, I'll we'll hear people say, well, that means that God, because he knows all things, he looked through history and he saw who would choose him and therefore, he chose them. That's his foreknowledge. It's a, it's a knowledge of information. Problem with that is two things. Two things. First of all, when this word foreknowledge, the word is prognosco, prognosis in this case. When, when the word foreknowledge is used in the context of it, it's always in the context of God's divine electing purposeful, active, choosing love. So when you read Romans chapter 8, when you read Ephesians chapter 1, when you read 1 Peter chapter 1, in the context of prognosco, he has just called them elect exiles. Let me explain why this is so important. Because if he just meant, well, he saw through the future and he saw he would choose them, it'd be more passive. And there are other Greek words you could use in that to just say, I have knowledge of information. No, gnosko is a, is a rich word that I love. My kids know it because I talk about it all the time. It, it is a knowing love. It, it's a knowing, it's a loving knowing. You are for love. Before you were ever in existence, God set his affection on you and me if you're in Christ. He, he said, I, I love you. I've chosen you. I've, I, I know you personally. So, for example, sometimes I tell the story of when I, when I was a student in Prague and, and I met Liam Neeson and I'm like, hey, I know Liam Neeson. And people are like, no, you don't know Liam Neeson. And I'll be like, no, I can go on Wikipedia and I can tell you all the information about Liam Neeson. And they're like, but you still don't know him. See, now you're starting to get it. That's the difference. But I know my wife. I know what she likes, what she doesn't like for 22 years almost. There's a difference, or, or put it this way. So uh, I could tell you all about Krispy Kreme. I can give you all the information, the calories, everything, how the process, you'd have a knowledge of it, but it wouldn't be a gnosko knowledge. That's not gnosko. Not until you put it in your mouth and you taste it on your tongue by experience is that gnosko. And so God says, I have set my affections on you in the same way that he chose Abram. Why? Abram was worshiping the moon. He was worshiping pagan gods. And Deuteronomy 7 says, just because I am merciful. Just because I do. He chose the nation of Israel, not because they were better or more powerful or more moral. No, they weren't. He just set his affection on them. And so to these, to these recipients, he just says, just know that you have been foreloved. He has set his affection on you. And he goes on, uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ, you see the Trinity at work in there for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Again, it's there again. Why were you born again? Well, I, I, I decided that um, I just needed Jesus in my life. no. You have as much say in your born again as you had in your firstborn. Physical birth. Why were you born again? He tells us. Because of his great mercy. I love that. 
I love that the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't have a, a counsel from eternity past and look down and say, uh, you know, Mark Oshman, we could really use someone like that on our team. He could really help advance our, our, our kingdom purposes. No! He saw my sin. He saw my foolishness. He saw my wickedness. He saw my perversity of thought, heart, and deed. He saw all of those things. And But because he is great in mercy, he said, I love him. He's going to be my son. He's going to be my chosen one. And I'm going to invite him into my story. I'm going to invite him into my process. He has caused us to be born again. But not just that. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These people that are wondering, is there any hope in this world? I've lost everything. I've been scattered. Is there any hope? And he says, oh, there's hope. It's not just a, it's not a little bit of hope. It's not a hope in hope's sake. It's not a hope like when you buy a lottery ticket and you spend all day thinking, oh, I hope that I win. But, but you know, in the end, it's not really going to hope. He says, it's a living hope. It's a breathing hope because the hope has a name and he pointed to it. His name is Jesus and he has conquered death in the grave. He is alive and he is our hope. And to these people that needed hope, he just points his eyes to Jesus. Look at his resurrected life. He is your hope. He's alive. Rejoice in that. Rest in that. Remain in that living hope. Man, hope. We we, we need hope. Victor uh, Frankl, he uh, was a uh, survivor of the Holocaust. He wrote... Uh, a book called the Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote it in nine days after uh, getting out of the concentration camp in, in Vienna. And in it, he talks about how important hope is. He talked about in the concentration camp, he said you could see it, the moment a person lost hope, it was over. Uh, they would just, it was a matter of hours, not days, before they'd be dead, either by the hands of the guards or just themselves. They, the, the moment they lost hope, it was over. He said, but there was others, there was others that had uh, a hope that they, they, that they held on to that, that they could get their life back, that, that they could go back to their city and they, they could go back to their jobs and see their family. And he says, now these people, they survived the concentration camp, but as they went back, they found everything changed. They didn't have family. They didn't have a house. They didn't have jobs. And, and for these people, because there wasn't a living hope, then depression and, and suicide went through the roof for them. Victor Frankl says, only people that had their hope outside of anything of this world that could come and go, only those people could persevere to the very end. This is what Peter's saying. You have a living hope beyond this world. In fact, he unpacks that a little bit more. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He says, you know what your hope is? It's a living hope. It's in Christ. He's preparing a place for you. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Just so it's very clear, it is rock solid. It's eternal. It's what you were made for. Do you ever notice that there's a diminishing capacity of awe in everything in this world? So, for example, some of you with kids, uh, you, you spend a lot of time researching. You bought their gifts it was amazing. Maybe there was tears shed uh, when they opened up there. But this is amazing. And between now, what's January 10th and December 25th, your kids have come to you and they said, I'm bored. I'm bored. Like, 
And if you didn't lose your cool, like I probably would have, you're like, what is wrong with you? You're just ungrateful. No, they're just human. Because here's the thing. You and I are eternal beings made in an eternal God's image. Temporary things can never capture our awe forever. They are temporary. This is why you can fly to Hawaii. You can see it. And just be like, man, this is amazing. You look around, what are these idiots doing? They're on their phones. They're searching Facebook. Do you see? This is the Nepali coast. This is awesome. About an hour later, you're checking Twitter. A diminishing capacity because you weren't made for temporary things. They can't hold your awe. They can't hold your worship. Here's the problem, though. When we turn temporal things, even good things, even particularly the best things, into ultimate things, they become idols and they crush us because they can't bear up under the weight of our worship. So very, very good things that God has given us as gifts, whether it be your wealth or good food or your marriage. Marriage is a gift of God. But if you think that if I just get married or if my wife just changes or my, so my husband just changes, if, if you're putting all your weight and expectation on, on a, a temporary thing like that to bear up under your weight of awe, and worth, it will disappoint you. Your spouse cannot be your God. You will either nag them to death to make them into the God that you want them to be or you will ignore all their shortcomings because you can't possibly admit that your God has some shortcomings. And it will destroy your marriage. Same thing with kids. The Bible says kids are a gift from the Lord, but they make terrible gods. And when you set them up and prop them up as the center of your household and everything revolves around them, they will crush you and you will be disappointed. Same thing with the Bible says that government is a good gift by God for the people, for God's people to, uh, to install uh, protection of the people to set up institutions for the flourishing of the people but when it becomes a god it is a terrible terrible god that we saw even this week when you prop up your only hope and you make something that is not transcendent transcendent and it gets taken away from you you're going to do everything you can to get that back it's a terrible god and the worst form of it is when we storm the Capitol with Jesus saves flags and blue lives matter and the Confederate flag into the Capitol, that's an abomination. The cross of Christ is not covered in the American flag. We are elect exiles. This is not our citizenship. This is not our ultimate hope that America would be an amazing place. We are exiles. We are for its flourishing. But it isn't where we put all our energy and effort and attention on. And so good things make terrible God things because they're not eternal. Only God can bear up under that weight. And only God will satisfy our souls forever. He goes on. He gets real with them. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's just real. He's like, I understand life hurts. There's pain. There's suffering. But even in this, verse 7, so that, he says there's a purpose to that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, What Peter is saying is, God does see, God does care. In fact, God is sovereign over your trials and your suffering and your sickness and your hurting and your pain because here's what that does. 
When you suffer, whether it's relationally or financially or physically, uh, spiritually, all, when, when, when you suffer in these ways and, and the things, the good things of this world, your, your status, your, your wealth, your health, they, they begin to get stripped away. And in the end, all you have is Jesus. You see that Jesus is enough. And so the, the enemy wants to use the suffering to shipwreck your faith. And God wants to use the suffering to say, in the end, you were made for the eternal king and his kingdom. And if that's all you have and everything's been stripped away, that'll be more than enough. So Jesus says, or Peter says, this has a purpose. And he goes on. He just wants us to, in this opening paragraph, just to see. And by the way, verse thir- 3 to 12 is one sentence in the original Greek. He, he is just... The ultimate run-on sentence. But he wants us to just know who we are. We are elect exiles. Know where our hope is. It's a living, eternal hope. And just ponder our privileged position. Did you catch that in verse 10? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when it predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. So, so when Jeremiah is writing and, and Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant and, and, and how he, he's, he's going to be called wonderful counselor, he, he can't quite see. He, he's like in the back of a, a full theater and he's looking down and, and he's like, man, I, I can't quite tell what's going on there, but, but, but I know God's going to do something and he's going to do a rescuing, merciful work. And, and Peter tells us what, what, what Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and Moses and all, all of them, what they were doing was serving you. That they were setting the row so you could sit in the front row to the, the, to the greatest story ever told. So you had, would have the, the greatest picture of the gospel and just be able to sit there and take that in. They were serving you. You have a privileged position. And, and he's talking to these elect exiles dispersed. He's like, look at what, what they've done for you. Not only that, he says angels. These things, angels long to look for. They're in the back like looking in like, what is God doing down there? And me and you were just in the front row like, this is amazing. God is for us. He for loved us. We suffer, but even in our suffering, it helps us see better. So what do we do with that? Well, three things I, I would say. I'll put them up on the screen here. The first one is that, that he, he's just calling us to rest in your chosen position. So, so sometime this week, just ponder what it means. That in spite of yourself, see all of our sins that we are committing, have committed, will commit, are all after Jesus has paid for them. So that there's nothing you can do to surprise him. Like, oh, we're out. We didn't know he was going to do that one. No, he has chosen you. He has set his affection on you to rest in your chosen position. The secondly, he calls us to um, rejoice. Rejoice in our imperishable inheritance. I mean, think about what, what Peter's trying to... Remember what you have. Even if everything in this world gets stripped away, you have something that is worth far, far, far more than that. So just rejoice. Let it fuel your worship. And finally, we are called to remain. Remain faithful to your heavenly citizenship. This is what Peter's going to spend a lot of time on over the next few weeks of talking about just to be who you are. Remain faithful as elect exiles. Think about what that means. What does faithfulness look like in, in 2020, 2021, Parker, Colorado? In these days, as elect exiles, 
What do we do? So just take some time this week to rest and rejoice and remain. May God do his work in us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. God, I I do pray that people would be encouraged by just a word uh, that is eternal, that is outside of our current circumstances and situation even in our country. Uh, Lord, we do pray that your true believers would, by your spirit, um, live as resident aliens, that they would do well in this world, not pull back, but they'd serve this world, but also just know that their true citizenship is in heaven with you. Lord, make us that kind of people. And as you do, make us a people that makes much of Jesus in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.